You spend much time in the Apple store? Uh, a little bit. I wouldn't say I'm in there all that often. I, I think I was probably in there more when we didn't have kids and Charlotte and I would go to the mall or something, you know, just walk around and we would drift into one. Well, actually with kids, I say now, it's the world's cheapest arcade until you buy something. But it's kind of like That's an arcade. They, they got a kid's table. The kids can go back and play some games and kind of look around and read the New York Times online. And then you end up getting sucked in and buy something. You're like, wow. Then it becomes, yeah, the most expensive arcade ever. <laughs> yeah. Like, I should have bought Pac-Man. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was playing for free and then I bought an iPad. That's right. Do you have an iPad? I do. In fact, I'm playing with the iPad Pro, the big one. Oh, you have one. Well, I got one. They have that two-week return policy. Oh, it's like me and the watch. You're trying to figure out if you're going to keep it. Yeah, which is kind of a sucker's game because usually you end up keeping these things. But it is interesting. Did you get a pencil with it? I did. I just thought I'm going to try it all because I listened to some nerd podcasts, tech podcasts, and uh, some of them were talking about how just this very different experience where, especially with the two apps, you can actually, it's almost like conducting because you can have one app with your left hand and one with the right and you're kind of shifting. So you don't have a mouse, you don't have a desktop and the apps are much more designed to hand off. They've had to, apps can't be sloppy like they can on a a, a traditional machine because you've got to think about how to hand things off without a desktop and a mouse. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't think it's quite the replacement yet, but I can see how it would get there. The Apple store in Cambridge, when we were there in Cambridge, England as grad students, that newly opened and I had a one-year-old child and that was kind of neat because it was 10 minutes away and there really wasn't many people there so you could just kind of pop in see if you can break something yeah and just leave uh so the apple store the app uh, was fun in the beginning nowadays it's kind of a sadly I think it's a little depressing because they're very crowded everyone's in the back trying to get their iphone fixed so it's a bit of like a uh it's like a car mechanic yeah, it used to be people that want to come see or test or explore whatever it is, a phone, a, a computer. Now, yeah, it's mostly grandmas trying to get their Gmail yes, to, to work. That's exactly you know? it. Exactly. In fact, the Apple Store employee the other week said they just try to help people, but this one woman was trying to recover like eight passwords. That's why she had come in. So it really had nothing to do with anything, but <laughs> they just have to humor people. The thing about the iPad Pro, though, is all of the advertising, all the commercials and things, it's all about being an artist. So it's, it's everyone with, a, with a pen, the, the pencil drawing and sketching and like, look, I'm, I'm a Disney animator. And <laughs> I, I know like on one hand, the number of people who could actually use that with some you know, efficiency and with some quality. It, it's always funny. It's like, I, I want to draw now. And yeah, yeah. You, but... It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> I want to use it for regular things. And I, I totally agree. But what's interesting is listening to these podcasts, people, you can actually use it just to navigate, but also to mm. sign and to highlight. And that's what got me interested because, yeah, I'm not an artist and, and I'd love to take a class and learn how to draw, but I don't. But just the whole interaction is different with the pencil. It's almost like a conductor. And you don't have yeah. the mouse. You don't have the clicking. So that's what's kind of intriguing that you can read an article and highlight you know, and yeah. put an asterisk and then it's a PDF and you've got it. In fact, I just scanned in all of my notes from grad school. And so the idea of digitizing and here you've got it oh. already digital. So that's kind of what interested me. It is funny though, the, the artist thing, because on one level, it's, it seems to me to be the only 
industry maybe where you do this or the only style or ad, maybe it's the word is adjective. I, I mean, you know, could you imagine any other skill set like math? Like, you know, it's just that the iPad is a guy just sitting there doing long division. It's like, look <laughs> at this. He could use the pencil to do math. But no, you know, that wouldn't work. But you see this like hipster guy doing art and you're like, oh yeah, that's totally me. Yeah. Like, I haven't picked up anything since the crayon days. I'm going to be somehow some an artist with the iPad. It's very aspirational. Yeah. But there's something about that where it seems like it should fit us. The other thing, though, with the iPad Pro, and I've been by the Apple Store a couple times to, to play around with them, but mm-hmm. the problem is because the, iOS, or the iOS rather is so proprietary, the apps that I would, or the, the software rather, that I would try to use on it doesn't actually come. You can only use apps, of course. So if you got a Surface or from, from Microsoft or you got some other tablet, you would run Windows 10 on it, and which means you could run any software. So I do Photoshop and Lightroom and other Adobe apps pretty regularly. But all they have on the iPad Pro is a pale comparison of an app to go with it. So it's a trade-off. It's the mm-hmm. best tablet, but it's the worst interface with the typical stuff you want to use it for. If that makes sense. No, it does. And, you know, Steve Jobs' famous comment about computers being trucks, you still need trucks. So I don't think there's few people that can really get by with with just an iPad, but I can see where it's going. And in terms of the processing speed, the iPad is up with a laptop. So it's it's getting there. And I know Adobe's got some of that stuff, some cool things, but but like you're saying, it doesn't have the full functionality, but you know, yeah. I think it's, we're in a weird transition. It is weird to think of a life without a mouse, without a desktop too. So everything's yeah. kind of in an app. In fact, the guy that was at Evernote, uh, Phil something, he was the CEO at Evernote and he left, but he, he's talking about how at a certain point, we're just going to think of apps as services and not as apps. It's like, huh. I want to do this thing. And that's what an app will be. It won't be this identified, I launched this thing. Yeah, it'll, it'll be probably housed off-site in a lot of cases. One of the things alongside that they're ta- that they're talking about is I built my own computer, the one I'm actually recording into right now. And it's actually a lot of fun. It's, it's not that challenging. It's, I always say, it's, it's Lego for adults. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a, a video card that only fits in the video card slot. It's very easy. <laughs> and these weird little metal ribbons that are like little plastic. It's like these weird connectors that you could cut with the child scissors and stuff. That's right. Yeah. Well, and you can't put it in the wrong spot and all this stuff. And, and, you, and there's every YouTube video in the world will show you how to use this or how to build it rather. And so I built my own. But one of the big challenges is always how much hard drive space do you have? And there are all these mechanisms that we still have. You either get external storage or you just jam the, the desktop full of, you know, these big hard drives and, and you have like you know, eight terabytes or something. And already we're moving this way. But the sort of futurist was saying not that much longer from now, not just our storage is going to be offsite, cloud-based, but the applications and the software run cloud-based. Yes. The virtual machine stuff. Yeah. That's right. You won't go buy the latest version of Word. Rather, you'll it'll be the software itself is housed offsite. You just subscribe to the access to use it. Mm-hmm. Already, things like video games work this way. You do download things, but it's smaller and smaller what they need to actually have downloaded or on disk, because the servers run it and just pummel it into your video card or something as you're playing it. So yeah, we're going much more virtual in all facets, not just um, virtual reality in terms of interaction. 
but actually the way things run are going to be virtually managed off-site, which the tech companies want because one of the great problems is, is they send out all these CDs of the software and there could be a thousand configurations of computers that they have to account for, which is why even in Apple with the apps, there's a little old lady in there trying to get it fixed. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine you know the PC world, all these variety of different things. But going back to the Apple store, it's very interesting because I read the Steve Jobs biography mm-hmm. and uh, the Walter Isaacson one. I read the Becoming Steve Jobs one. I need to read okay. Isaacson. Just Isaacson's one. great because Steve Jobs selected him to write the biography. Mm-hmm. So he gave him unparalleled access. And Isaacson was one of the few that knew he was actually terminal. And so he did like a lot of final interviews with Steve Jobs. That's the best-selling biography ever. R- ever. I think so. Of any bi- number one, yeah. I mean, really? you know, it's always it's always going to sell more now than a biography did 200 years ago because there's more people, right? So it's always a bit of a crap game. That's true. But it's like you know, every other weekend, the the, the biggest selling movie of all time comes out. Exactly. You know? Well, it has seven billion people in the world, so of course there's more. Yeah, or, or the high. My favorite is the highest grossing movie, 18 billion dollars. It's like you charge like a dollar <laughs> back in the 70s. Of course, it's of course. more now. It's IMAX, you know. It's well, so and true. somebody did like an inflationary ratio of movies and apparently if you do that if you account for inflation star wars is still the biggest selling really yeah because they it apparently would there there weren't a lot of movies or as many i should say movies in theaters and it (laughs) come on son the movies in town oh that's all i've ever wanted (laughs) that's right well i mean i took my kids to see finding dory over the weekend Uh and you know yeah there's like 12 movies playing right you know back back when star wars was coming out there were a lot fewer but apparently there were stories of people just going to see it like a, like all the time. Like it just stayed in theaters. And it would come back. I remember movies would, they would come back six months later. Like, we're going to show it again. Yeah. It was like yeah, nothing I, else I think, I think that's, yeah. that's the case here, I think, um, yeah. if I remember correctly. But people would just, they had nothing else to do. So they'd go see Star Wars again. Mm-hmm. So, um, but apparently if you, if you adjust for inflation, it's still number one. Interesting. But in, in the Isaacson biography about the Apple store, I think there's a chapter about the store. And it's really interesting because they just talk about how there had never been quite a store like it. I mean, you walked into a furniture store, you still walk into a furniture store, a car dealership. You're really almost seen as an imposition if you're just there to look around and not buy anything. Yeah. You know, if you're just like, no, nope, I'm just here to sit on the couch. And, you and know? the people there are on commission. <laughs> so they want to sell. And the Apple store, no commission. They don't care. No commission. Well, and that would actually be a fun experiment is just to go to a furniture store with a book and sit in the Lazy Boy. <laughs> right. Like, no, I'm just I'm just here to to try it out, you know. <laughs> but but this was Steve Jobs' idea, and, and everything from the this, the color of the wood, the, the the white sort of beech wood color, mm-hmm. the way he laid it out, he just wanted people to walk around and play. He didn't care how you know how long you're there, all those things. So when it first came out, it was a marvel of this vision mm-hmm. that just let them play with the stuff, and eventually they'll really want to buy it. And had the Genius Bar, that was an innovation. People could go yeah. and ask questions, and it used to be you could walk in and just get an appointment. Now both my mother-in-law and my wife separately had broken iPhones. And you know how people are now when their phone breaks. I mean, it is, it's apocalypse. It's like, I've got, yeah. and it's funny. Um, to, I don't know to, how they know how to drive anywhere. I, is, that's, that's it. And, <laughs> and, and so if you go over there cold turkey now, it's a three hour wait. Hmm. You know, you, you can't just slide in. You've got to have an appointment and the appointments are three days out. So it's kind of like going to see the doctor now. You have to get an yeah, appointment really and you don't yeah. want to be late and all that. And I chose to wait the three hours because... My wife actually uses it for work and really needed her phone. She was panicking. 
and and the Apple store becomes kind of a depressing place over three hours. You know, you think, yeah. <laughs> I can stand to read the New York Times, but then you kind of, you're not comfortable. There's, there's not that much news to care about. There's not no. that much news yeah. and the lights are bright. There's no chair. And you're like, this isn't as, you know, this isn't Starbucks. You, you should have just bought one of those like blue shirts and just walked around and helped people. <laughs> that would have been funny. You know, the micro, the surface does this better. Have you heard about the other story? <laughs> Bill Gates is still alive, you know. <laughs> Microsoft yeah. wins. He's still alive. I will say that one of the worst experiences I ever had was going to an Apple store. Something had been purchased or was being fixed. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I was there to pick, just, just to pick it up. It wasn't the new thing that was coming out. But it was the day something new was being released. And there were armed security guards, lines... And I'm not waiting in that crap. I was just getting there. I was walking in to buy something and I about got tackled. It was like this, what are you doing? You can't buy a phone or whatever it was. Weird. I said, I- I'm not. I'm, I'm just getting a new SIM card or something. I forget what it was. And they were like, well, let me see your phone. Like they, they, they thought I was there to like swindle the, those who've been sleeping outside or something for this new gadget. And I was just like, guys, I, I know this like gives the illusion that you're wanted and desirable, but <laughs> actually I want less of you now because of this. <laughs> Ouch. And uh, yeah. Yeah. It, and it's funny because the Genius Bar has become something of a running gag with folks. I mean, you know, the, the, the ironic hipster that's always, you know, not really wanting to be there, but still is addicted to Apple. And yet he's working for the, the wealthiest company in the, on right. the planet. That's the, this type of a strange thing for him. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Well, and it's very hard because Mac was always the plucky upstart that was radical. And now they are not that. They're, they, again, they're, they're basically the Microsoft. They're the big ones. Yeah, they are. Um, Think Different was about being on the outside. And now yeah. They, yeah, they're the most profitable company and most profitable real estate at the Apple store. And, and it's interesting. You have these real Apple haters and then you have the Apple fanboys. So it's, it's kind of yeah. like a sports team. I will say, I mean, again, now that I've built a computer, I uh, do a lot of software stuff, uh, I've become sort of a, what they call a prosumer with gadgetry stuff. Uh, at least the insides of how the computers work. I will say uh, the fanboy of Mac just I, I don't I don't get it. Like no company could do everything perfectly. But still there are people who will just avoid and ignore obvious flaws in some stuff Mac does. So and a great example is the finder button on a Mac. It is not intuitive awesome to search for everything. I mean it's one place to search your entire computer for the one thing you're looking for. Whereas, because I have both, uh, a PC is a better, the, the folder system where you can, you just keep going down and then there's the breadcrumb thing at the top to click back out. It's it just little things like that. And everyone's like, no, Mac is perfect. It's like, well, no one's perfect. Come on. Yeah. You yeah. know, they both have, they're both great. There was times when Microsoft was a lot worse. They're, they're doing a lot better now. All those things. So I, the, the, the slavish like, oh no, Microsoft is horrible at everything and Apple is the best at everything. Just, it just can't hold true. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I'm probably more in the fanboy camp myself, but uh, there are different types of fanboys. And I think the one that is slavishly just Apple is perfect, there's not yeah. many of those. There's some, but most Apple people are like a sports team fan club. They love their team, but they also love to complain about them. And so a lot of yeah. Apple people you know, are really mad about the new MacBook only has one port and, and yes. they're annoyed at stuff. So a lot of the stuff I listen to on the podcast, they they like to gripe. They love Apple, but they like to gripe too. And so there's kind of a love, not hate, but a love frustration. Do you think a lot of that's new? Like, did they gripe about, I don't remember as much griping before no, Steve Jobs died. I think the griping is more 
now that they're so big. Uh, well, yeah. and they also are, I mean, it is a company that's been willing to take risks. So they got rid of the, um, you know, they went all USB and they got rid yeah. of the floppy drive. So they really are willing to annoy even their own fans oh, yeah. and their own consumers, which is kind of cool. And they got rid of the 30 pin connector on the iPhone. They said, you know what, we're going to do a better port because it's better. Yeah. And, uh, and people- I will say that has annoyed the heck out of me having four different seemingly at times MacBook adapters. Yeah. When I was on vacation one and I forgot it and I went and bought one. Doesn't work. I go back. Well, you got to buy this other thing on top of it. I mean, it's just like five things. The adapter, it's, like, it's annoying. J- just yeah. get me some power. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I need to check my email. But I'll say this about Apple people. One thing I've noticed, you'll know, you can tell someone with a MacBook because they're usually not looking for a power plug, you know, like an mm. outlet. But so many, because Apple is one of the things they've been great at is battery management, great batteries and Yes. And everything. So you'll see them come in and do a PowerPoint. They're not worried about the cord. And you see the poor guy with the crappy Dell. And there's some good Dells out there. So, but when you get the crappy one, they're always like, oh yeah. my God, where's the port? <laughs> I've got to plug in because I, I can't go 10 minutes without plugging in. And you're like, it's not much yeah. of a laptop, is it there? No, plug it really in all the time. No. So, and you see them in the airport, you know, sitting on the floor, plugged in. You're like, oh, that's kind of sad. That's but, right. You're right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, for me, that there's there's always strengths in 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 one and the weaknesses in one and vice versa. So I'm actually uh, the, you know the luxury of of being able to have and use both been great because there's times when you know my PC just makes way more sense. Now, granted, again, if I was doing a Dell, the sneaky secret why people build their own computers is if you bought a Dell, even if you bought a, a high end one, you could build. Twice the machine for half the cost. Right. I mean, not even kidding. It's that level of difference. So you're paying. I mean, you're paying for really a lot less, uh, really kind of bad components, and and then it doesn't quite work, and you know all this stuff. Yeah. So it's when that was the way it was, and Dell was basically all you could buy. You know, at that point, Mac was just king of the world because you really couldn't fight with it. I mean, you pay about just maybe a couple hundred dollars more, but at the end of it, it's going to be a better system. Yeah, I'm with you. And um, I don't use Windows a whole lot. I use it occasionally with the the computer from school. There are definitely pluses to the Windows system. And, and Windows Phone was great. It just was too late and never got enough steam. But iOS is showing its age. And, and Windows Phone had those tiles that updated. It was pretty neat. Yep. But um, yeah. they just never got any traction. It was, they, they, they got And the Zoom? Time. Remember the Zoom? I that thing was that. awesome. Was it? You know... <laughs> Are you no, it was, it was horrible. No, no one bought. It was the worst thing. I heard ever. a few people uh, liked it, but uh, yeah, it was. Didn't they have it? it was no, called, they like, liked squirts. it because they bought it and were stuck with it. They didn't like it. No one liked it. Didn't you share it's music? A, it's a universal hate. Wasn't it like you shared music by squirts? There was something awful. That does not sound appealing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. We might need to fact check that, but there was some awful term they had for like sharing music between other people. A squirt. Here's a squirt. <laughs> Ugh. Like, Anywho, well, uh, I wonder what John Wesley, which computer he would use, because this is often a useful historical question, right? I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he would be building his own. <laughs> you think so? No. Actually, I, what do you think? You're the Methodist. Which gadgetry fanboy would John Wesley be? I think he would be when he would get the cheapest deli he could so he could give it to the poor. That is very true. Yeah, he he. Th- there's some fact that, that always floats around about... His salary kept increasing over the years, but he kept living off the same that he always mm-hmm. had when he was younger, and he just kept giving more away. 
Um, he never increased his, his lifestyle. Yeah, very Franciscan, very kind of unofficial vow to poverty. So I think that, but then I think Wesley would also have been interested in the life hacker technology bit because he... Oh yeah, like using paper clips to, you know, manage your cords <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> you know, Picking your heartbeat with MacGyver type tools. Three or the food hacks that you see on Facebook where <laughs> yeah. it's like, take, you know, a, a loaf of bread, three eggs, a, you know, a shiitake mushroom, and suddenly you make a lasagna. <laughs> right. My wife read that you should store pineapples upside down. And so she does that. And it kind of drives me crazy. I'm like, this is totally bogus, but she's convinced that they stay riper if they're upside down. I am perfectly happy to have right side up pineapple. Well, it's yeah. not going to sit upside down. So you have to kind of shove it in a corner. And with a paperweight. Yeah, wait, yeah. there's the green crap on top of it. How does... Well, it, This makes no sense. I, I, I know. It, <laughs> <laughs> I hope she's not listening. <laughs> no. What we need is a gadget to hold the pineapple upside down. Exactly. Like, to, like, like a claw hand that will pinch it. Maybe with Chewbacca's head on it. We can make an Etsy. Maybe a, do an maybe Etsy a swing arm right. so that, you know, you can swing it forward and have some lovely pineapple and swing it back away to, to hang there. That would be awesome. One of the things about Wesley, though, just to back onto him, you know, if we're going to talk about his importance, one of the things that struck me, I've taught several times in a Wesleyan context. There's a youth ministry program out of Orlando, and the guy who started it is Methodist, and youth ministry is a big thing in the Methodist circles there. Maybe, I don't know, nationally or something, if that's a big push for them. So a lot of these students are Methodist, and I was doing church history. One of the more interesting things that I found is there was this great appreciation for him. They knew some of the stories about him. But there wasn't maybe as much of a desire to just sort of know his biography inside and out as maybe a Lutheran would about Luther, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they knew the, the older's gate, you know, heart strangely warmed. They, they knew the stories of his ministry, but none of them could tell me where he was born. Most people were like, really? He went to Oxford? You know, it, was, it, was, it could have been the context, of course. You know, youth ministers are new to theological education. One of the things I've always found interesting when I got into history was just the biography of Wesley, because on the one hand, I found him strangely compelling. He has a kind of, I don't know if the word is a, he's a bit like Luther in the sense that he's just a man on fire. Like there, there's, he's always going after his vision where he thinks ministry ought to go. He never stops going back and forth to America to preach, all these things. But on the other hand, I found him to, uh, at least the, the early half of his life to be, he was a very conflicted guy in the sense that, you know, he was always striving for something that seemed to be just out of reach, if that makes sense. He knew he'd get there, but he wasn't a quietist. He wasn't, he certainly wasn't a, like a Puritan and he wasn't a pietist in the sense of just sort of sitting around. The energy that he was willing to put into going out to do ministry, riding horseback all those miles and things, is just really unique. And I don't think enough people stop and realize how unique it is, hmm. his life, you know. Yeah, that is interesting. Do, uh, do you think Calvinists know that much about Calvin? You say Lutherans do, but... I think Calvinists would know more in, in the sense that I don't find Calvin's life to be all that thrilling. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. He went to a meeting and stuff, right? He preached and went to meetings, I guess. Yeah, and it, he, just, he was very resi- he- hesitant, I should say, to talk about himself. Uh, you know, he he demanded that he be buried in an unmarked grave. Yeah, that really, you know, I got to go to uh, Geneva and I was very surprised at that. No one knows where he's buried. Very cool. Whereas if you go to Wittenberg, do you know where Luther's buried at Wittenberg? No. So you go into the cha- the, the church, you know, the, the main church there. He's buried right under it. There is a, there's a, almost a mausoleum coffin right down, like you're, you're, it's, a, it's a raised pulpit. So if you're up there preaching, 
if you look down at your notes, you're looking, basically if you raise your eyes just a little bit, you're staring right at his tomb. That's pretty right awesome. Right there. With, <laughs> it's both awesome and kind of weird at the same time. It's just like, hey, Luther, I'm just, I'm up here for a minute. Like, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's just an anecdote. That's right. So that's just Calvin's personality. But Calvin tells us nothing about his marriage, nothing about his, his kids. I mean, you just don't, we don't know very much. I guess the way I'm trying to say is, Wesley is the embodiment of an ideal, a commitment to, hmm. to sanctification, a commitment to radical evangelizing, the, the, you know, the Great Awakening. is an inspiration to that end. I don't know. I'm trying to put my finger on what it is. It's just slightly different. Yeah. They're not trying to be him. Maybe that's the way to say it. Huh. They're not trying to be him, but they're trying to live in that kind of radical ideal that he embodied, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's very interesting. I never thought of it that way, to be honest, that he's kind of this, this ideal that in a sense... You don't have to master his story to understand the ideal. Uh, part of it might just be the geography that that American Methodism is really kind of established by lay preachers in a lot of ways, mm. and there's a distance. And and when American Methodism is getting strong, Wesley, he's kind of a father figure, but he's not really involved with really. It's he kind of gives its blessing after the American Revolution that there'd be a separate yeah. Methodist church, but it, it kind of takes its own destiny and shape. And uh, maybe that's part of it is is that there's a sense that he's a figure from a different past, and and he is in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's very true. Well, and Anglicanism has has the same twist in the American story because the early Anglican bishops, you know, around the time of the Revolution, did not want to appoint an archbishop over America. They said, nope, you got to report back to us. And the way the first bishop in the Anglican church got planted in the United States was he went back and said, hey, ordain me to be a bishop. I've, we've got churches there now. And the Westminster guy said, no. So the guy goes up to Scotland and some bishop up there just says, all right, <laughs> just kind of baptizes really? him. Really? Or, or, or consecrates him, rather, as the, the first bishop of what would become known as the Episcopal Church in America. I did not know that. Yeah. So I, I wonder, if, yeah, there's probably an old world, new world split there that's, that's probably driving it. But it, it's interesting, though, because historically, Methodism, let me put it this way. Growing up, I never would have guessed the long, important history of Methodism in America. Like, we, like every city yeah. has you know, a Methodist church. Even our, our little city had a Methodist church. I just thought it was you know, one of the churches. But then I got into history and I started studying it. One of the very interesting things about Methodism was a couple things that historians have pointed out. One, it is the first to really capitalize its, its ethos. It capitalizes on this new sense of independence and a democratization in the American setting. Mm -hmm. So we joked earlier about, you know, a friend of mine said a Methodist, they have the meeting to decide about the meeting when they're going to have the meeting. Mm -hmm. And that sounds tedious maybe to a modern who's looking at their phone ready to go somewhere. But in a world where things used to always be decided for you, to have that level of clarity, like show up for the meeting because you have to vote, you have to be a part of this. Now, obviously there are bishops and things, but 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 there there's a there, there's a spirit of it, it somehow it fit the American ethos of progress and improvement and a desire for for new for re renewal, you might say. Mm -hmm. That was one, and then secondly, just their energy. So as as the West expanded, a lot of the old world guys stayed out east, you know, the Puritans and so. But there's this one stat I found that, that just, just makes this concrete. So from the Declaration of Independence to the Civil War, you have about 100 years there, 1776 to the 1860s. The Methodist Church went from 200 Methodist churches to 20,000 
Methodist churches. Wow. A hundred years, like it's just a staggering explosion of the impact of, of Methodists. The only denomination that compares is Baptist in that same period. You know, this is why, again, you look at, you, you go to an old city, like the Methodist church is, is a really, usually a really impressive church there in downtown, you know, mm-hmm. the first United Methodist church. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But there's this, there's this deep legacy. Maybe it's because we don't think of the 1800s all that much. All we think about is cowboys and the Civil War. But in terms of church life, it's the Methodists really are the hot ticket, the hot show, the, the most influential, they're the most radical on things like abolition of slavery, all those things. There's a real gift that Methodism does bring to the American scene that is underappreciated, I think, because we don't know the 1800s very much off the yeah. top of our head. Yeah, I could definitely see that, that there's kind of an ignorance about what's going on in the 1800s. And I was surprised to learn that the Methodist church is the largest church in the 1800s till the Catholics start taking over, I think, around the 1850s. I don't think we really quite Yeah, it's know, immigration. But immigration is what changes Catholicism. And then the Baptists take over sometime in the 1900s. So Methodism yes. is now the third largest, or, or was at one point, the third largest church, single church in the country. But uh, yeah, Methodism, there used to be this thing that people kind of said there's almost a Methodist church in every county in the United States. I'm not sure it's quite yeah, true, yeah. but 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 they are quite spread out. And uh, the circuit riders are really willing to go. It was a very portable religion. I've heard Christianity described that way. In fact, it might be Bruce Shelley book mm. describes Christianity as a portable Judaism. Hmm. Somewhere I picked that up. Well, that's up. interesting, yeah. Because he sort of takes some of these things of Judaism, but all of a sudden you don't need circumcision. You don't have to be in the temple. You know, it's kind mm. of a portable bit. And and Methodism is a very portable religion in a sense. And and you're going back to the, the democratization, the bishops, their only real thing they do is appoint pastors. Yeah. And they usually run annual conference, but that's it. So like other bishops and other churches can kind of control certain things and 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 very the, yeah. the, the Methodist bishops don't have any of that. They just basically assign and that's it. I mean, it's kind of weird. They're very limited. Yeah, I mean, most people when you hear bishop if you're not raised in that environment, you're thinking like medieval bishop, you know, yeah. kiss the ring, total power. No, you're right. It's not. It's not that. In fact, they don't even confirm. There were other churches with bishops. Usually they mm. confirm people for confirmation. Yeah. Methodism is just the pastor. It's not a bishop. I mean, it could be a bishop, but it doesn't have to be. Is it too much or too, um, or is it not enough, I should say, to say that they're primarily administrative? I think it is. Okay. I think that's a very fair comment. In some circles, that might be taken as a, as a slight, but I don't mean it to be such. Their job is to, you need somebody to run the ship. I mean, even Presbyterians who would hate the word bishop have a, somebody who runs the, the administrative, you know, single person elected. They're usually called a clerk or something. Yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah, I mean, institutions need people to run it. So, uh, yeah, there is a real yeah. administrative role. I don't think the bishops in Ameri- American method, British Methodism doesn't have them at all, but American Methodism, yeah. uh, they're not seen exactly as a center of doctrine like they are in the Episcopal Church, mm. where you know, like really mm. the bishop is kind of... In fact, the bishop tells you where to go to seminary, I believe. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. And the Lutheran Church too. They are they guide you. Yeah, basically, if if you say, "Hey, I'm going to this school," and they say, "I don't want you to go there," and you still go, you're you're not getting ordained. Yeah, yeah. At least if they want to play hardball. Yeah, so it's up to their choice. I think that's one of the things when you talk about the gift of Methodism, is it's so wrapped up in major turning points in American history, things like the Revolution. Um, so after the Revolution, and you know, as the slave trade carries on. Well, of course, there are freedmen who are set free for whatever reason, or they buy their way out. 
And Methodists were amongst the first to proselytize, to evangelize in the context of African-Americans now in the States. So a lot of the great heritage of African-American Christianity in America would not happen if it wasn't for the Methodists. Mm. Now, the Methodists aren't perfect. They, they're still oppression at times. And, and, and in some areas, African-American churches break off. Mm-hmm. But you look at the, uh, the church like the AME church, phenomenally important for American history. I mean, the president right now, uh, Obama, he attends an AME church. It's, mm. it's that significant in the heritage of the African-American experience. The AME stands for African Methodist Episcopal. Yeah. Because it came out of them. It was a Methodist. They, they had been brought to the faith by the Methodist world. They didn't think that there was enough harmony and that their voice was being heard enough. So they, they left and started their own. But they wanted to retain everything else. Yeah. They, they, were made, they were made Methodist. That's one. And the other little stat that's interesting – or the, the, the historical point, rather, is it was Francis Asbury who brought the first African-American preacher to speak to white audiences in America. Yeah. Harry Hosier, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was a Methodist preacher. I've heard about him. There's a famous picture of Asbury being consecrated, I guess is the word, by Wesley back in London. And Harry Hosier, there's a, there's a, there's a black man in the back, it's in the painting, because he and Asbury were close. Huh. And uh, So Harry was British too? No, they, they both went, uh, he just went back with them. So as Asbury was doing the circuit ride, Harry Hosier came to the faith. Asbury then mentored him to be a preacher mm-hmm. and then said, all right, get out there and preach. I don't care if they're white, get out there and preach. You know, this is revival, son, get out. <laughs> and right. uh, so he, he, he stayed with Asbury so that when Asbury went back to London to, to be consecrated, Hosier went with him. Huh. And th- th- things like that. I mean, again, no denomination is perfect, but Methodists in the 1800s were on the front end of things like women's suffrage, the abolition movement. I mean, they, they were calling for these things decades before others were Yeah, yeah. Uh, in some cases. And, and you know, that, that's not appreciated enough, I don't think, that they saw these problems. I mean, Wesley himself saw these problems first, even as it was just getting underway. But we think of Methodism as such a stalwart established denomination, you know, with the big churches and the numbers, that you forget that for so long, again, it was radical. It, 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 it really pushed some buttons in American culture that people didn't want to have pushed. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really a renewal movement. So I tell students it was like intervarsity Christian fellowship or something or crew. Mm. Like you weren't Methodist was, was a supplemental thing for a long time. Mm -hmm. You weren't Methodist, you were Anglican and Methodist, or you were reformed and Methodist. So you could go to the Methodist society, but it wasn't its own church. It was supplemental. And then at a certain point it changed, but it really was renewal within most of the Anglican church, but there are some reformed Methodists and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Whitfield, of course, was kind of, yeah. was in the Holy yeah, Club he and he's much more Calvinist. He's a Calvinist Methodist. Yeah. Yeah. So there are some other varieties, but part of it is uh, Wesley's administrative genius. Oh yeah. And, and this much. gets commented that, you know, Whitfield is not able to build the network that Wesley does because Wesley has this way yeah. of getting people into classes, having accountability, having leaders, having the leaders accountable. It's this huge network. Everyone does Sunday school. It's a Methodist invention. Yeah, there you go. Francis Asbury. And Asbury was the most famous guy of his day. He's largely kind of forgotten, but he went all over the country, uh, never married and and very difficult life and just con- you know preaching couple times a day and traveling and, mm. and supposedly all sorts of health ailments like his back. And there's, we have his journals and he's writing about oh. how bad he feels <laughs> and how bad he slept oh. last night he's, oh, you know, because man. he's sleeping rough. He's, he's, he's Clint Eastwood, you know, out there preaching yeah. and riding around. And, 
And yeah, the Wild West sounds fun until you're out there with no doctors, no dentists, no aspirin, you and go. you're sleeping with your head head on a rock. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that I find interesting, it's one of the harder things for me with Wesley, again, is that mon- almost monastic ideal of the Holy Club. You know, they, they had taken so many vows about, at one point, you know, they vowed ne- never to marry. It does feel quasi-monastic, or at least the, the, there's such a, a desire for, for something that, that it's, it, it's, it's hard for me to identify with, put it that way. I mean, I was just not from that world. Are there still Methodists today that would kind of go after that ideal, that almost ascetic ideal, or is that more or less more Wesley and and their personalities back in the early days? I, I think it was the early days. I think it's mostly lost. Wesley actually has a kind of a, a very prophetic saying that he was worried that the Methodist churches physically would not become too comfortable, or else mm. Methodism would become not a religion of the poor, but a religion of the middle class, and then the spirit of Methodism would be lost. And that is kind of what's happened. I mean, it's become a very middle class, you know, Wesley told people to fast, and it's very unusual to see Methodists that are fasting. I'm sure there are exceptions, and of course you get all sorts of denominations, a Wesleyan, Nazarene, they might be a little more into it, but Wesley's ideals of really a very structured, disciplined life are mostly gone. It's kind of ironic. How would sort of your average, I'm not thinking of the pastors, but like your average well-intentioned, serious Methodist layperson, man or woman, what would you say is, I don't want to make it a caricature, but what would they consider to be the the ultimate quest for holiness? Like, again, since they're not going to pursue that monastic thing with fasting and that type of stuff, are there any like big ticket things? Like, do do they ever go teetotaling, no drink, any of that type of stuff? Or is there something else that that they go after? Or, Or is it hard to say? It's hard to say. I, I think it was Will Willimon said that most Methodists, their theology is God is nice and we ought to be nice too, which is mm. kind of a pretty damning statement. And of course, he is is a bishop in the Methodist church. Methodism is is kind of vague these days. We've it, It's a very vague religion. There's, there's a lot of nice things in it. People are taught about God's love and grace, but it's kind of vague about everything. People are kind and accepting. I think it's a very... It's a kind religion, let me put it that way. Mm. But there's not a, a, I don't know. I like to say sometimes in history that the instincts in a tradition or denomination can go extreme and become a character, of course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, in the Calvinist sense, an extreme version would be just the grumpy fatalist that just, you know, everyone's wrong theologically. Right. The character of the Baptist, and there's a, 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 a friend of mine on, on staff with us who's a Southern Baptist, and he just says, like, like the, the caricature is just trying to get as many people baptized uh, each week as he possibly can. And there's like this gaudy font, like this like baptismal pool that he just wants to <laughs> run them through. <laughs> right, and, right. I don't know. I, I think you're right about the kindness thing. If, 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 as an outsider, if I were to say, all right, take the, the, the good impulses in a Methodist and run it out to a caricature, it's just a, 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 a very, very sweet, loving, kind person that that's it. But, yeah. but, you know, that, that they just really want to work at, at love and interpersonal relationships more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Always talking about God's grace. And the problem is you think, well, what do you, what does that mean? I mean, it sounds from good. What? Yeah. yeah. Grace from what? what? What's, you know, it's like, what is in God's grace so wonderful? Um, yeah. So that's a great place to start. But yeah, what, it needs uh, something to hang our hat on in there. Are Methodists fun-loving people? Like you have a big old, like you say you have a big cookout, you know, is it just a lot of laughter and hanging out? I mean, does the kindness ever get to the point of just like pure enjoyment, if that makes sense? I think there probably is a hanging out, but there's also, there is a bit of, 
of, of thinking, well, I don't want to have too much fun. I think there's a sure. little bit of that, not a lot. The whole Puritan. Uh, then thing. that's the Wesley ideal, right? I think yeah. so. There's a bit of don't that. don't yeah. have too much, don't don't eat too much, yeah, that yeah, kind of stuff. There's a little bit of that. I mean, again, that's a big generalization. Well, it's it's interesting because you take the ba- the Baptist Church, which again, my my friend and I've I've heard all I have all types of Baptist friends, and they're very they can be very self deprecating in, in a good way when they make jokes mm-hmm. about themselves. One of the, the the common jokes they always go to is about the overly round pastor who just loves to eat a key lime pie yeah. you know, at the at the potluck. And just, there is not a sense built into it of that Wesleyan ideal of frugality and giving away. I mean, not that, again, not that there's, that they don't give away or those kinds of things, but again, the fun loving Baptist is like, you know, again, a, a, when they make their own jokes about themselves, it's, it's, it's about the pastor who eats too much or something. There seems to be, again, as an outsider, an interesting, a unique tension in Methodism that that's cool, which is Wesley's like desire to, for things to improve and, and and revival and evangelism and and then self improvement through holiness, but then also this monastic ideal, which traditionally is based off of you're not progressing and you can't and you got to really sort of double down on almost self denial because you're 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 so not progressing in things. If that makes sense. Hmm. So you have a tension that 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 that's that's very, it, it gives it a ton of energy. Methodists are the only ones that the circuit riders, those guys on the horseback, no one is doing that. I mean, that that is so interesting, the 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 yeah, drive to right. go do evangelism. Yeah, and I think that is very Wesley. There's an energy there. There's a drive. Of course, he's on horseback for two hundred thousand miles, some three hundred thousand. It's some, it's yeah, it's, it's asinine. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's crazy. all over. In fact, he had a, a a desk. You know, he kind of, I think, he invented it. To face backwards yeah. so he could work on his desk while he's riding the back <laughs> yeah, of the horse. Yeah, I've seen a picture of him so, yeah, riding backwards. <laughs> so it's crazy. Well, and Savannah, Savannah is only two hours away from where I live. And, you know, that was one of the places in his early ministry here when he was a boy before Aldersgate. And um, there's a s- statues of him and there's all kinds of stuff to him there. But Asbury as well, every statue I've ever seen of him, he's on a horse. Mm-hmm. Or a picture of him. There's, there's, there's the horse back riding. I mean... I don't know. I I've, I've been on a horse. That that's a lot of miles for your for your butt. Yeah. <laughs> and a saddle. And it's not fun. Uh, you know. That even is... if they were a lot better at making them back then than maybe now, still. That's just just incredible. It's some work. Yeah, you've got to hang on there. I mean, you can't. But yeah, there is uh... I, I get I get angry if there's a 30-minute commute in my car, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Come on. The stoplight's red. It's it's a disaster. That's uh, right. Forget it. I'm not doing evangelism. Uh, Going home. Yeah. I'll wait till the light's green. <laughs> The, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, there is a real dynamism to Wesley, and and I think it is theological. And he has that really interesting contribution. Wesley's really only distinctive theology. Most everything he said, someone else had said at some point. What he does mm-hmm. is combine them in really his person and very powerfully. But And he stresses the heart because he's coming out of this from that pietist movement. But the one mm-hmm. distinctive thing is his idea of Christian perfection, that we should really expect to be without sin in this life. And yeah. that's a really distinctive moment. But sometimes people misunderstand that, that they think it means you'll yeah, be... Yeah, they do. Yeah. They think it means you won't make mistakes, but that would be inhuman, or you would know everything. Well, that would be inhuman too. It, Wesley really means yeah. it's a perfect love. And for Wesley, it's a horizon. There's a horizon of, yeah. of perfect love that we are really hoping for in this life. We may not get it. Wesley never claimed he got it. But there's a horizon we're always going towards that we never reach. It's really quite lovely. There's a teleological point yes. you're heading towards. Yeah. And you're right. I, the other the other side of it is, is people hear Christian perfection 
I, I do think on some level it's an unfortunate phrase within Protestantism because yeah. it feels alien to the Luther move, you know, perfection. But he doesn't mean it's a do this or else. It's not built out of that. It's rather out of justification this flows. I, I've begun in my teaching when I get to that point, I love to set it up. So I say, oh, yeah, he believes, you know, in Christian perfection, you can be perfect. And those not accustomed to this, their heads start to spin a little bit. They're going, why would he say that? You know, mm-hmm. what about Romans 7? You know, I, I don't do those things I want to do and I do them the things I don't want to do. And, and then I go, all right, let me help translate. Maybe there's a translation here. And I say, what Wesley really believes is you can have victory over sin. That's how I start. Yeah, and yeah. I say, you don't have to be a Christian and be an alcoholic or a drug addict. You can get beyond that, that those things will fall away increasingly and you will move to, I like that word, horizon, that it's not just sit around and wait for heaven, but there's a goal in this life to do something. Yes, and, and we act with the expectation that we can reach it, even though we kind of know we can't really. There's still yeah. kind of this hope that, could, because you, if you say, well, we'll never get there, then there's kind of a, a, a despondency there. There's a, yeah. you know, well, why bother? Which is part of the character of the frozen chosen is, well, if, if it's all done in me, why try? You know, yes. Which which can can uh, can devolve into why do anything? Right. And and Wesley really he's battling. You're right. He's battling quietism. People that think well, we we'll just wait for that to happen. And he's battling mm-hmm. uh, Anglicans that don't really act on their faith. And he's also battling Calvinists that hold on to predestination. But Wesley himself liked Calvin and said he was only a hair's breadth from Calvin. So he likes yeah. Calvin. But as you're saying, the caricature, the Calvinists of his day that think, well, I'm elect, I don't have to do anything. That just drives Wesley bananas because he's thinking, in fact, he has this great sermon about the, the, the wedding garment. And he says, that's the holiness that we're required to actually mm-hmm. enter the kingdom. But even though it is not works righteousness for him, it's still God's It's very grace, interesting but. though, because I don't know that much about it, but I'm curious to, do, to you know ask somebody who knows, what were these Calvinists like that he's coming in contact with in the States? Because back in England earlier, you know, prior to his time, 100 years, Puritans were known, ironically, as a bit like the Methodists were. They were the do-gooders. The, they wrote lots of books on spiritual formation and change and sanctification. They were the ones who wanted to not do anything on Sunday but rest. And the, the English thought this was crazy. You know, you should be able to do whatever you want. They were the, the sticklers because they, 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 they felt that there was an ideal. And that's where the word Puritan, the, the purifying ones, mm-hmm. they were the ones who strove for, for purity. Well, I'm sorry, theologically, perf- the word perfection and purity are not that dissimilar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I find it strange that, you know, these, these Puritans that Wesley's coming across, and again, I just don't know, are exuding something, maybe not knowingly, but they're exuding something of this frozen chosen that he's reacting against. You know, certainly when he went down to, the, to visit the Merovingians after his conversion, there was this sense of, well, we're just sitting around in this, <laughs> at Herrenhut, which is this kind of luxurious manner. Just, just praying, just, just doing lots of stuff here, and he's just—he's a man who who seemed to see where these things could go, thinking in in a good way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. So um, that's the gift of Methodism, kind of this dynamic gift of Methodism, holiness, holiness um, and commitment and discipline, and that's even where the name comes from, Methodism, to be methodical in a sense, because to be honest, without a method, you don't learn anything. You can't learn to play piano. You can't learn Adobe Audition. Uh, you know, yeah. you, and you can't actually be spiritual without showing up and being methodical about, I'm going to pray, I'm going to study, I'm going to go to church, I mean, or going to the gym. You can't think about going to the gym, you have to go. So, 
yeah, spiritual lives very similar. Yeah. Well, as always, like us on Facebook. Uh, if you like the podcast, by all means, send us uh, notes as to what you want us to, to potentially cover. Yeah, we're on uh, the Twitter and we're on the Facebook, and that's probably the easiest way to catch us. You said the. Yeah, the. <laughs> the, the. The Facebook. The Facebook. Didn't you see the movie? You're not supposed to say the Facebook. The Faces of Death book. Remember the Faces of Death? <laughs> oh, yes. That was horrible. I never saw it, but it was I'm still legendary. scarred to this day. <laughs> I'm still scarred. No, it was... Actually, it wasn't all that bad. It was just... It, frankly, you see worse on CSI right. uh, in some cases than you saw on Faces of Death. That was a weird segue after our, uh, after our ending there. We had to lighten the mood a little, right? <laughs> <laughs> Kristen Perfection, Faces of Death. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you. <laughs>